2: The devastation and destruction from Hurricane Florence may leave three million homes and businesses without power. Here to tell us more about the situation it's, is Kit Conledge, our Senior Industrials and Utilities Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. He joins us here in our 1130 studios. Kit, it is always a pleasure to have you here. Give us an update on what you know about the utilities' response to the hurricane.
4: Well, Pim, the utilities gear up, obviously, days ahead of time. Uh, And in recent years, in response to criticism in the past, they've kind of, if you will, over uh, prepared for these situations. They call in. Thousands of of backup linemen from other utilities around the country, so they should be well prepared. Obviously, once the lights start going out now, I think they're up to about half a million outages now, and we'll see how rapidly that goes. Uh, Everybody expects there to be outages. Then the utilities tend to get measured on, obviously, the safety of, of their operations and also on how quickly they turn people back on.
3: So one thing that I'm wondering is, just in general, are utilities that are relatively close to the coast prepared for more storms like this, given the fact that it is expected that we will see more of them?
4: Right, Lisa. Well, they... Uh, you know they tell you they are. So uh, it's the proof is always in in what they do. I think I think it's fair to say that certainly after Fukushima in Japan, they got uh, very focused on making sure that the truly critical infrastructure, the nuclear plants in particular, uh, is safeguarded from. Uh, you know, anything they can think of in terms of really uh, outside of normal conditions. Uh, But look, it's a long coastline. There's a lot of stuff that can go wrong. And I think we just have to see each time, are they prepared or are they not prepared?
2: Talk a little bit about the responsibility that utilities bear during natural disasters, but also When it comes to disasters and catastrophes, such as the one that is at least currently being experienced in Massachusetts, in Lawrence and Andover, North Andover, with gas. Seemingly gas explosions. What is it about the liability issues that's important to know?
4: Right. Well, the the usual rule that investors think about and that utility managers think about is that uh, there there are natural uh, disasters that you can't, of course, prevent, uh, but you can do something about, and you're judged on how well you respond to them, like a hurricane. Uh, it, when a gas pipe explodes that you're operating, that's never supposed to happen. Clearly, so immediately, I mean, that stock of the company that owns that nice source is down ten or eleven percent today, uh, and and naturally people are concerned, as they should be, and uh, the local population is concerned about how bad the pipes are in the ground.
3: You know, one thing that I'm struck by just with natural disasters, I mean, obviously an an explosion that shouldn't have happened that caused death is a a whole situation unto itself. But one thing that I'm struck by is even when there's a strong windstorm, you often hear of people losing power, often thousands, uh, especially with uh, uh, congested areas like the tri-state area right around New York City. I'm just wondering, I mean, what is the move going forward going to be to try to ensure longer access to electricity i mean this seems like it should be better
4: that you know that's a that's a great question because the there are solutions to it. Unfortunately, they're very expensive. Every time there's a hurricane in Florida, for example, uh, somebody suggests, let's bury all the power lines. Well, you know, would then that they, work? Well, <laughs> it, it would work if you wanted to spend 10 or $20 billion. And, but it's also, as we know, a pretty high water table in Florida. So That's how well the, the wires would survive for how long, it, you know, is another issue. So I think, it, it's fair to say that there's a trade-off there, right? I mean, the, the, the society as a whole has decided that some outages sometime uh, are worth it because the alternative of making it completely uh, you know, bulletproof to, to operate under any conditions uh, is just too expensive you have systems like the nuclear plants communicating with each other or military uses, then there are situations where not just electricity but any other communications or energy, et cetera, are, are very hardened. Uh, but that's a ex- very expensive way to go and maybe more than people want to pay.
3: I don't know. Every time I hear about the thousands of people who lose their power when there's like a little bit of wind, my, my in-laws <laughs> had a situation. I heard about it for weeks. Anyway, Kit Conledge, <laughs> thank you so much for being with us. Kit Conledge, Senior Industrials and Utilities Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. I'm sure you'll be filling us in as we assess the damage. It'll be uh, important to track. Although at a certain point, you have to wonder right now, really, our thoughts are with people whose homes are getting flooded and who are uh, you know, potentially going yes. to be losing a lot of things I mean, this is a devastating storm with the storm surge that is coming And all the people
2: who are stranded, we're thinking of you and hoping that you are safe as well. Maybe, you know, travelers and so on that are hopefully safe and out of harm's way.
3: Yeah. And in shelters, I saw a lot of people in schools and things uh, with their children. It's very disruptive and I'm sure alarming. So our thoughts are with them. Emerging markets has been a big question mark over the past few weeks. A huge fall as Turkey's financial crisis, or I should say currency crisis, got underway. And Argentina seemed to be heading toward a similar direction. Then a pause. And over the past two days, we've seen a little bit of a rebound today, a little bit flat. Joining us now to find out whether this is a time to buy developing markets assets or a time to sell is Michael Brandis, chief investment strategist of Itau Private Bank. It is Latin America's biggest bank, correct?
5: That is correct.
3: All right. Thank Thank you so much for being with us. You've been covering emerging markets for a long time, and credit in particular. And I'm wondering, as we view the developing world right now, are we looking at the beginnings of a protracted sell-off as the Fed raises rates, or... Is this what we've seen in the past few months—a hiccup that is a buying opportunity?
5: Well, I I mean, first of all, thanks. Thank you for having me here. It's it's real pleasure to be back. Uh, The current, I, I would say, the current window of opportunity is still representative of more stress to come. Uh, I think a a more attractive window is opening up. So I I, I am constructive about EM, I would say, in the medium term. But in the very short term, while we're encouraged by uh, what happened to Turkey yesterday, uh, by the surprise hike from Russia today, uh, we think that there is a a willingness uh, for emerging market countries to address uh, inflation concerns and the volatility in their currencies. It may be just a little early um, to start adding back into exposures.
2: Looking at the performance of the Brazilian real, the chart seems to indicate that things are not getting better, that the value of the currency will continue to deteriorate against the U.S. dollar. What's your call?
5: Well, I, I mean the, the, what's happening with the real uh, is is representative also of we have we have presidential elections coming next month, which is very uncertain. And then the volatility happening more broadly in currency markets. So our view is that we should see the real top out here. Uh, we, we think that we're our, our target is still for about a 3.9 against the dollar, which would be a little stronger than where it is right now. What we need to see though, uh, beyond the the domestic uh, geopolitical uncertainties, we need to see uh, less currency volatility more broadly, maybe a softening the US dollar, maybe a little lower in US trade tensions, but the fundamentals in Brazil are still quite sound.
3: I'm struggling with something that you said, which is that you do see more pain ahead for emerging markets. There's some positive steps being taken, but there is more downside here. How do you, as a portfolio manager and a portfolio constructor with a huge focus on EM, how do you invest then?
5: Well, what you do is you look for the brighter spots, you try to be more selective about your exposures, you manage your currency risk to the best extent you can. So Uh, how do you do that? Well, you do that, let's say you look at hard currency versus local currency uh, uh, debt, Uh, and we look at opportunities, let's say, in in Russia or uh, Colombia, probably more uh, sustainably, Positive than places like Turkey, Argentina, South Africa. So you're Africa. out of
3: Turkey and Argentina.
5: Yeah, Turkey and Argentina. Well, Argentina, uh, we, you know, we we think that the IMF package. There's been talk of getting that expedited back. Um, we we're more positive there than in Turkey, where I think the political risk is really different from what President Macri has uh, presents to the Argentine Republic. But again, the pain near term is going to be difficult. So we diversify. We look at diversifying that risk into the developed markets and in hard currency debt. Where do you find the biggest challenge to liquidity right now? Biggest challenge to liquidity is in, well, in EM broadly, we're seeing flows come out. And, and part of this is, is this is challenging because. So, what does that mean? The bid and ask spread gets wider and wider? That's right. So, the bid ask spread has widened the level of trading has diminished. And what that does also, it has an impact on the ability to generate new supply. So one of the one of the problems in the technical side of the market going forward is that on the, on, on the corporate or in the credit side of EM, we have a calendar of supply that's supposed to come up. But at the same time, you have investors pulling back because of the volatility we discussed. And that is uh, uh, affecting price discovery right so in markets that are less liquid you need this price discovery you need new issuance to demonstrate that there are prices that you can buy and sell at.
3: You know, it's interesting that you say you would diversify more toward developed markets Mm. in certain cases. This seems to be actually the opposite of what some people are saying. For example, Jeffrey Gunlock of Double Line Capital, when he said he actually thinks that the U.S. markets could underperform after an incredible outperformance and suggests moving to more global exposure, I'm just wondering... um, how do you sort of defend against your position, especially considering the fact that a lot of people are saying the US markets have gone so far, so fast, diverged from the rest of the world, and it can't continue?
5: Well, you know, if if we're talking about, uh, I mean, there's equities and there's fixed income, and I'll just speak bri- briefly on the equity side, and, and, you know, we've been positive on, on, on the U.S. equity market. We talk about equity positions, U.S. equities and Japanese equities. And on the U.S. equity market is interesting. I have to give a shout out to a former colleague of mine, Tobias Lefkovich, who did some great work on this. When he talked about there are a lot of clients right now or investors are talking about the Shiller Cape. And they're saying, oh, it's very expensive and it looks like valuations. Why would you even buy the U.S. market here? Now, again, a pullback is plausible. There's, there's no doubt about it. But Tobias had made the point uh, in a recent report that said you know, he doesn't integrate in this measure a cost of capital. And if you look at cost of capital in Cape and you integrate that, valuations are full, but they're not necessarily rich. So I think there is – the way you do it is you manage expectations. You don't expect the kinds of returns that we've had in the past uh, to go forward. But you manage that also on a risk-adjusted basis, we would expect there to be less volatility. You said CAPE, and you got to just explain. Oh, the, the, the cyclically adjusted uh, a PE ratio, which, which tries to normalize this over time. Um, I'm not going to go for a technical explanation, uh, Pim. As you know, you, you're, Thank you. you're, you're <laughs> going after my vulnerable spot here, which is, which is uh, I'm a bond guy at heart but uh, I'll get your definition uh, by email. Oh, no, no. I just, just wanted to just set out the parameters <laughs> yes. so people understand. Yes, that. Robert Schiller from Yale. This okay. is his, it, uh, his benchmark it, that indeed. everyone follows. Indeed.
2: Yeah. Um, do you perceive that there's going to be any intermediary risk? And I go to this issue of liquidity again because sure. it is not just the actual instrument or asset that can be at risk. It's sometimes the middlemen, the traders in between, they might not have the liquidity in order to withstand any rapid movement.
5: Well, it's a good point. And it's a good point because, as we know, since Basel III and Dodd-Frank and Volcker rule uh, that the primary dealers in the U.S. and financial institutions elsewhere have less ability to absorb or buffer these transitions in volatility because their trading desk can't take this on and they have to hold higher quality capital against their risk. It's a very good point because at this time we have the Federal Reserve, which of course its balance sheet is starting to shrink. Uh, Bank of Japan maybe 10 or 20 years ago in our lifetime, I don't know. But certainly ECB had just announced that they're going to cut their uh, uh, purchases in half uh, and uh, go to zero at the end of the year. So this is going to be uh, challenging. Um, So we are looking at it. Thanks very much for being with us. Always a pleasure.
2: Michael Brandis, Chief Investment Strategist, Itau Private Bank. This
0: is Bloomberg. Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, giving you even more specialized support than ever before. Like access to the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders ready to tackle anything from the most complex trading questions to a simple strategy gut check. Need assistance? No problem. Get 24/7 professional answers and live help and access support by phone, email, and in-platform chat. That's how Schwab is here for you to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com/trading.
2: The Treasury Department has weighed in on a potential for tax reform 2.0. For example, Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin has said that the department may be able to make a big capital gains tax change without congressional approval. Here to tell us more is Chris Mackey. He is the founder of Solutionomics. Chris, always a pleasure. Thanks for being with us. Tell us what you know about this potential change to the tax code and what you believe it will mean for the country.
6: Well, good morning. It's great to be with you. Thanks for having me. So what we're talking about here is when you cut through all the details and the minutia, we're talking about a reduction, a further reduction in corporate tax rates. Now, we've already seen a significant reduction in corporate tax rates, and unfortunately, uh, the results have not been as advertised or as expected. So the idea of further cutting corporate tax rates in the hope that what hasn't happened, namely um, a greater improvement across the board without significant increases in deficits, uh, that just doesn't make any sense. If they really wanted to do a tax reform They would have the greatest economic impact. Then focus more on the consumer and specifically the middle income and lower consumer because they're the ones who are going to go out and spend, which will then cause companies to hire even more.
3: So I'd love to get your perspective on what Kevin Hassett, who is an economic uh, advisor to President Trump, would he put out there earlier in the week where he was talking about the economic boom, I think it was late last week, uh, that the tax cuts have caused for the United States and how really President Trump's tenure has marked a turning point for the economy. Do you think that, uh, that, that you wouldn't get more of a boon if you did it more permanently?
6: what i think is that there's a big difference between what's you know the rhetoric and the reality let, let me just give you a, a quick stat here so we've been hearing a lot of talk about uh, greater wage growth but we're really talking about is the illusion of greater wage growth because real wage growth that is wage growth when you count for inflation is actually down since the tax bill was passed just this recent august uh wage gains were up 2.9 percent which sounds good and sounds better however Inflation is up 2.7 percent. So the consumer actually got 0.2 percent increase in real wages versus August of last year before the tax cuts. Wages were up 2.6 percent, but inflation was only 2 percent. So they actually got a 0.6 percent increase. So we're not even getting what was hoped for. And in addition to that, we're going to pile on more debt for the consumer. So no I, I don't think that actually is the best way to go. What we've got is the equivalent of a sugar high financed by deficits it's It's unsustainable and it's not even as good as the rhetoric
2: Chris. the one trillion dollars of additional debt that was taken on did that equal anything when it comes to wages per week? I understand you've written about this in the past, and it looks as though it was an increase of maybe twenty five cents an hour. That's what it translated into.
6: (laughs) So glad you brought that up. So actually, if you look at the increase from July to August, we're talking a whopping dime, 10 cents. Um, Now, that's not going to pay for college, but here's what's even more concerning. If you look at the increase in wages after tax cuts for the eight-month period from the end of 2017 to August, they grew 52 cents an hour. But the eight months prior to the passage of the tax bill, they already grew 47 cents an hour. So the actual real increase in wage growth after we took on that additional trillion dollars and what they're talking about being even more was a nickel. So, no, there's, there's not a lot of bang for the buck, and we're just adding more and more debt, and specifically more and more debt on the consumer, which eventually is going to catch up to them, and they're not going to be very happy about
2: What about the effect on business investment?
6: So on business investment, that's very interesting. Everybody likes to tout the increase in business investment, but I haven't checked the most recent revisions, but the last time I checked this, the rate of increase in business investment is actually down. So yes, business investment is increasing, but it was increasing before the tax cuts. It's just now it's increasing at a lower rate than before the tax cuts.
3: You know, Chris, I'd love your opinion since you do contribute to the Fed's Beige Book and have consulted with the Federal Reserve. So you have an intimate knowledge of policies on a range of different fronts, as well as from a range of different ideologies. I'm just wondering, you know, Elizabeth Warren coming out, the senator saying today that she thinks the big banks should be broken up. You have calls for more regulation on the Democratic side. I mean, do you think that that's the way to go? Go. I mean, do you think that do you, do you do you kind of agree with the basis of having fewer government interventions and and sort of cutting the taxes if possible? If you could also cut spending, or do you just disagree fundamentally with 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 sort of in general cutting taxes in order to spur growth?
6: No, I don't disagree with cutting taxes. What I disagree with is cutting taxes without any connection to. Um, actual wage growth or employment growth. So if you really want to do tax reform 2.0, it's it's just very logical. You say companies that increase hiring and the companies that increase wages, they get the biggest tax cuts. What we did instead was we had a hope-based tax policy. We cut taxes for all corporations across the board and hoped they would create more jobs and hoped they would increase wages. Now, some did, but... A fair number didn't, but they got the same tax break. So if you wanted to get a better ROI, a better return on investment, tie each company's tax rate to each company's rate of employment growth and wage growth. That's how you would get the best bang for the buck for the American citizen.
2: Chris, could you just do about 30 seconds or so on trade policy? Because I know you've been active in following the trade negotiations between the United States and China, but also trade negotiations between the United States and the European Union?
6: Certainly. Boy, I uh, wish we had more time for that one. But here, here's the summary. Look, um, something needed to be done about trade policy. Uh, the tariffs are unequal. We're getting the uh, bad end of the deal. Uh, we should at least have reciprocal terms. My concern with what's currently being done is it's being done too suddenly corporations need time to be able to adjust their logistics supply chains. So I agree that something needs to be done. I agree that we need to level the playing field, but it needs to be done more gradually so the corporations can adjust in their supply chains.
3: Chris Mackey, thank you so much for being with us. Really a pleasure. Chris Mackey, founder of Solutionomics in New York. Uh, He has been checking out the economy in the U.S. for decades and advising the Fed as well as uh, their Beige Book. Here's a question. We hear about some companies heading into the cannabis sector. They tend to be alcohol companies and not tobacco ones. What gives here? Why wouldn't tobacco be the natural participant here? Joining us now is Tara LaChapelle, a columnist covering deals and all of the consumer aspects of our world for Bloomberg Opinion, as well as Christine Oram. She is a news reporter coming to us from Toronto for Bloomberg. Christine, let's start with you. What do we know so far about how much tobacco has tried to get into marijuana and uh, just how much that contrasts with alcohol's interest.
7: Uh, Well, we haven't seen a lot of interest from the tobacco industry so far, and you're absolutely right, compared to um, the investments and indications of interest from the alcohol industry. Tobacco is virtually non-existent. Um, We had one very small investment from a company, from Imperial Brands, the British company, in a very small, closely held company called Oxford Cannabinoid Technologies, Uh, so small that they didn't actually even give a value of that investment. And uh, Alliance One also has a stake in a Canadian cannabis producer. But other than that, there hasn't been a lot of interest, uh, especially from the major players in the tobacco industry.
3: Okay, so Tara, come on in here. And from a strategic standpoint, why wouldn't the Philip Morris of the world flock to the cannabis industry.
8: Right. It seems like such a natural fit. Um, I think there's probably a couple of things going on. It could be that behind the scenes they are working on this. We know in the past, decades ago, that they started to. Um, and I think maybe they're waiting for federal legalization before they really make a big move. And they've also got a lot of other things on their plate right now. You know, they've been trying to get into vapors, which is probably cannibalizing a little bit of their uh, cigarette sales. So I think, you know, they're dealing with that right now. But, you know, it could be that they're throwing force and and lobbying efforts behind the scenes that we don't know about. And I mean, that would make a lot of sense, too.
2: Tara, the Food and Drug Administration has already targeted vaping, right? They're alarmed by the increase in use among teenagers. And they've declared that teenage use of electronic cigarettes has reached what they describe as an epidemic proportion. Is that also one of the reasons why you believe that tobacco companies are going slow.
8: It could be. I mean, that's been a, a pro and con for them, really, because on the one hand, the FDA is going after the amount of nicotine in these products because that obviously makes it very addictive and they want to reduce that, which hurts the major tobacco companies. On the other hand, going after the flavors in products that Juul sells, which is a, a new uh, upstart competitor for them and a really big competitor that's done a lot of marketing, a lot of advertising, I mean, that could be a, a boon for the big tobacco companies if they could get this other competitor sort of keep them away a little bit off their turf. Christine, come on in here because, you know, what Tara says
3: is really compelling. That Maybe the big tobacco companies are working on the cannabis industry behind the scenes. Suggests that they would want to do it in-house. It would be homegrown, if you will. Christine, can you give us a sense of what kind of competition that would pose to the existing cannabis companies given how well their stocks have been doing? I mean, I'm t- thinking of Tilray, which is up 600% since its IPO.
7: Yes, we've seen some some ridiculous stock moves in the space, and that, you know the what really generated those moves was, Canopies deal with Constellation Brands, which is, of course, the company behind uh, Corona Beer, Robert Mondavi Wine, many other brands that we're familiar with, and that has sent stock soaring, so that was because of the alcohol involvement in the space. Uh, of course, if, if a major tobacco company got into cannabis, decided to start doing its own work without partnering with an existing company, that would pose a, potentially a, a pretty big threat because they have a lot of uh, resources and and frankly cash behind them however uh, there's also the issue of reputation that you have to take into account and uh, this goes both ways I was talking to an analyst uh, recently who looks at both tobacco and cannabis and he was saying you know he's gotten the sense that a lot of tobacco companies have been wary about getting into the cannabis space because they're worried about the damage it could do to their reputation which is sort of ironic because I don't think the tobacco companies have much of a reputation to protect (laughs) Um, on the other hand you can see from a cannabis company perspective they're trying to put forward right now this sort of holistic, healthy view that cannabis is good for you, it has medical properties and so on, by having a tobacco player in the industry, uh, a lot of those companies may not want to partner with a tobacco company because it could actually potentially damage uh, their brand as well.
2: Christine, just could you expand a little bit on how Canada is legalizing the recreational use of marijuana and who's controlling and running that aspect
7: of the business? So, yes, uh, legal, legalization will happen on October 17th, which will open recreational use to all adults across the country. Canada, Canada will be uh, just the second country in the world after Uruguay to legalize on uh, a countrywide basis. Uh, this is very much a government initiative. Our Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, uh, stated about five years ago that he was in favor of legalization and made that a priority as soon as he was elected uh, in 2015. So this has been underway for a while. Uh, it, but it's also generated a Huge uh, private industry here. We have over 120 companies that are publicly traded in Canada, including a lot of companies with U.S. operations because currently those American companies can't list on U.S. stock exchanges. Yeah. And so a lot of Canadian investment bankers, stock exchanges, companies, uh, you know ancillary businesses have arisen around this industry, and Canada, at least for the time being, has established itself as a global leader. I think the question is, you know, if and when the U.S. does legalize on a national level, on a federal level, whether Canada can maintain that leadership position, because, of course, the American market is so
3: much bigger. Well, and Tara, that raises a question of what the barriers to entry are. And if tobacco is going to get in, do they have an advantage because of the distribution networks or are they at a disadvantage because they're coming to it late in the game?
8: I think no matter what, they'll always have a big advantage just given their experience, you know. Coming over regulatory hurdles, working with the government. I mean, I, I think it would be unwise to un- underestimate big tobacco's power in the market. On the other hand, I think it makes so much sense that companies like Constellation are looking ahead and seeing, you know, s- sales of of liquor and beer and wine. I mean, that's it's a tough market, and it's not growing as quickly as it used to. It makes a lot of sense to start looking at this. And while you know, I'm sure that they have an eye toward the U.S. market, which is huge, there it makes sense to start in Canada and get a foothold there. And I think these early moves are getting rewarded for it by the investors now.
2: I want to thank you both very much for joining us and enlightening us about this issue. Bloomberg's uh, Christine Oram, Oramara, Canada. Cannabis Reporter. And of course, October 17th, as she mentioned, the uh, the moment when it will become legal in Canada for recreational marijuana. And our thanks also to Tara LaChapelle, Bloomberg covers, uh, columnist, covering all sorts of deals and uh, media, telecommunications, Berkshire Hathaway, for example, and now, of course, uh, cannabis.
3: Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg P&L Podcast.
2: You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox.
3: I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.
1: What could you do if your data was working
3: for you and not against you?